This morning we read from Acts 8. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowd heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame went healed. So there was great joy in that city. Good morning. I love a good story. And the best stories have some kind of turning point somewhere where things are going a certain direction and something happens. And it may seem insignificant at the time, but it ends up being very significant because the whole story begins to move in a new direction. In fact, if we think about our own stories, our own lives, each of us has those turning points in our own lives where we made a certain choice or something happened, an event in our lives, and our life began to move in a whole new direction that changed, really, the course of our lives. One of my favorite stories by far is Lord of the Rings. I love that story. And over the holidays, we always try to watch it again. It's holiday tradition. We happen to be watching the third one this time. But I was thinking of the first one where the Fellowship of the Ring, as they gather and this community gets built of diverse people, goblin, uh, excuse me, an elf, a dwarf, a wizard, hobbits, men, and they gather together and they form this fellowship and their whole purpose is to take care of the ring, to get rid of the ring, this evil ring. But at the end of the story, at the end of the first book, the first third of the trilogy, there is a huge turning point when a band of orcs attacks the fellowship. And when that attack happens, they're scattered. And Frodo and Sam take off on their own to get rid of the ring themselves. And it's a major turning point that directs the rest of the story. In our passage today, in the book of Acts, there's an incredible turning point in the grand story, the great story of God's great purposes. Let me remind you of kind of where we are in the book of Acts in the great story. Of course, the great story on earth begins with creation. When God stepped in and created all there is, and he said, it is good. It is very good. But then, very quickly, Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God. And at that point, the entire creation fell. And everything and everyone since then has been tainted with sin. Every one of us is born with this heart of rebellion against God. And so the entire creation has gone wayward away from God. 
But then God began his great plan of redemption, his plan of restoration to restore creation and to restore mankind to himself. It began with Abraham as he called out Abraham and began to form a nation, the nation of Israel, and began to work towards the great event of sending Messiah, Jesus, to come and die on the cross to cover our sins and to create a new community. And so as we begin in the book of Acts, we saw where Jesus gave a final charge to his disciples and then ascended into heaven, poured out his Holy Spirit. And we've seen how that created this wonderful new community, the community of faith, the church. But now it's time to step into the next phase of God's restoration plan. It's a major turning point in chapter 8. See, up to this point, the church has been all about building a community in Jerusalem. But God's story from the very beginning, his plan was always to reach all the nations, right? Back in Genesis 12, when he called Abraham, what did he say to him? I will bless you so that you will be a blessing to all the families, all the nations of the earth. That was God's plan from the beginning. And in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, God is speaking through Isaiah to his Messiah, Jesus. And he says this, He says, it's too small a thing that you, Jesus, should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. You see, the gospel is not just for Israel, right? And in fact, because of what happened in our passage today, you and I are sitting here. Because the gospel went out beyond Israel to the nations, to the Gentiles, which began here in Acts chapter 8. And the way God does that, the way he spreads the gospel, the way he moves it out, I think is very significant and important for us to understand in this passage so that we can be full participants in the great story of God. He wants us to not be observers, but to be participants in this great story that he is working out to bring restoration to all of creation and all mankind. So let's pray and we'll look at Acts chapter 8 together. Lord, thank you for this amazing passage that is an incredible turning point in the life of the church and in your great plan of restoration. May it also be a turning point in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at this passage, how does the gospel spread? How does God work out his plan to get the gospel to all the nations? Well, it begins first with persecution. (laughs) How does he spread the gospel? How does it spread through persecution? We, We saw, as David just read, Saul was in hearty agreement. On that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Verse 3, Saul began ravaging the church. Saul, who later became the apostle Paul, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. 
Again, to remind you, up to this time, the church had experienced some persecution, as we've seen in the book of Acts. Peter and John were put in jail, but God rescued them. All the apostles were put in jail. God rescued them. And then last chapter, we saw how Stephen was martyred. He was put to death, which was obviously a difficult, crushing time. But by and large, the church was still functioning as a community where they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayer. They were building this community of faith where they were growing together in Christ. And so far, they were able to do that in homes and in the temple and wherever they were. But that is now over. As Saul begins to persecute the church, he pursues, and now he invades homes. And it must have been terrible for those believers as they are in their homes and the soldiers come in and take away the men, take away the women, breaking up families, leaving children bereft of their parents. It had to be a terrible time as parents are thrown in jail. The place where they've been able to build this community of faith is now being ripped apart because, as Satan knows, the home is the center of faith to a large degree, and so it was a terrible time, a great injustice. Verse 2 is an interesting verse kind of thrown in there. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. Why does Luke include that? Well, for one, I think, to mourn publicly over an executed criminal was illegal according to Jewish law. So they were breaking the law, but it also allowed Saul to see visibly who the Christians were so he could attack them in their homes and rip their families apart. Think about what it must have been like for those early Christians going through this time of persecution as their homes are being broken up and they're being scattered, it says, all through Judea. And Samaria, they had to, I would think, question God. God, what are you doing? We're followers of you. What's going on here? Why are we going through this terrible time? But you know what? This was God's plan all along. (laughs) Remember back at the beginning of Acts, in chapter 1, verse 8, when Jesus is commissioning the disciples, he says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. God's plan all along was to get them scattered. And he uses persecution to do it. Why? Why did God need to use persecution? Well, I suspect, at least looking at my own heart, (laughs) that we as Christians are going to stay comfortably where we are unless something forces us out of our comfort zone. And persecution is a wonderful way to get scattered, (laughs) to move us out. In fact, that's been God's plan throughout history. Persecution has always, through the last 2,000 years, been used of God to get his people out. So they're sharing the gospel in new places, in new venues, and not just staying comfortable right where they are. 
We see that all through the book of Acts. We see Paul as he goes from place to place. He'll go into a city. He'll preach the gospel. Persecution will start. He'll run for his life to another city. The church is planted there. And now he goes to another city, shares the gospel, gets kicked out of there, goes to another city, and the gospel gets spread throughout the Roman Empire. You see, that's God's plan. John Stott gives us a modern example of that when he says this. A modern parallel is what happened in 1949 in China when the national government was defeated by the communists. 637 China Inland Mission missionaries were obliged to leave. It seemed a total disaster. Yet within four years, 286 of those had been redeployed in Southeast Asia and Japan while the national Christians in China, even under severe persecution, began to multiply. And now, and he's writing in 1990, so it's far beyond this, but as he says, now they total 30 or 40 times the number they were when the missionaries left. God uses persecution to spread the gospel Tertullian in 197 A.D., a Christian historian famously said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's persecution that causes us to be planted elsewhere so that we can grow and the gospel can expand. But when I look at this, I go, well, what about us today here, sitting here in America? We, we're pretty comfortable. We don't experience a ton of persecution, a certain amount of rejection if we're verbal about our faith. And, and we're looked at by the world as kind of crazy and haters and bigots and hypocrites and all of that because we believe the truth in Jesus. What about us, though? Well, personally, I believe a, a, a much greater persecution is coming for us. Things have changed a lot just in the last few years in the attitude of the world around us towards Christians. And I think we will experience some great persecution. But in the meantime, I think this is a challenge for us that we need to step outside our comfort zone intentionally. We need to make the choice to not be forced out of our comfort zone and be intentional about sharing the gospel to reaching across barriers, to stepping out, to let people know the good news, to be part of the great story that God is working out in the world. The gospel spreads through persecution. But secondly, we see in this story, the gospel spreads through faithful witnesses yeah, persecution scatters us, but it's faithful witnesses that actually bring the gospel to the world. Notice verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered went and hid. Oh, no, wait a minute. It doesn't say that, does it? Those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. That's striking to me because... It would be easy, I think, for us in their situation to just go lay low. 
The fire's kind of hot right now. I'm going to lay low until it all blows over, until life gets a little more comfortable. But no, it says they went and they spread the word. They went about preaching the word. Something inside of them was more important than personal safety or comfort. The gospel, being part of the great story, sharing the good news, was more important than their personal safety. They didn't feel the need to hide behind their locked gates and their locked doors, but they stepped out to be part of God's great story of redemption because they saw that as more important. They had a passion to spread the gospel, to save lives, because they knew that people were dying in their sin eternally apart from God, and they wanted people to know the good news. Brothers and sisters, God has called us to be part of the great story. I was reading a blog this week of a young woman 20-something, her name's Rachel Jones. And she mentioned a term that I'd never heard before. It's called the quarter-life crisis. Many of us go through midlife crisis or three-quarter-life crisis, right? Retirement. But she's talking about a term, the quarter-life crisis. She says this, if you've not come across this increasingly popular phrase, it's a time, it's time that you did. It's a phenomenon that can strike any time in your 20s or early 30s. The dawning realization that you've reached the age by which you assumed you would have it all figured out, only to find that you don't. The networking website LinkedIn found that 75% of 25 to 33-year-olds report having a quarter-life crisis. Rachel Jones writes, and I'm one of them. What should I do with my life? You'd be hard-pressed to find a 20-something that hasn't contemplated this question with a degree of terror. What job? Whom to date? Where to live? This is the paralysis of adulting. We can feel unable to make decisions because there's so many paths to choose from and we're not even sure where we're aiming to reach. We struggle to figure that out because we don't know what will fulfill us. So we keep our options open even as they overwhelm us, so that we don't miss out or get it wrong. And in doing so, we never go anywhere. That's the mark of a lot of 20 to 30-somethings in our world. We need to understand that. But I think it's a mark of all of us at different phases in our lives often. And I think These younger folks look at older folks and they see that living for money or living for personal comfort, all of that isn't satisfying. And they're wondering, isn't there more than that? Well, good for them. (laughs) Because God has a bigger purpose for every one of us. A bigger purpose that he calls us to, to be part of his great story of bringing restoration to creation and restoration to this world of people that are dying in their sin and in their lostness. Verse 6 says this, The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs that he was performing. Those two words stuck out to me, heard and saw. 
People respond to the gospel when they hear and see. When they see something in your life that says, wow, there's more to life than what I'm experiencing. And then when they hear the truth of the gospel, it takes both. The gospel must be lived out by how we love others, but we can't forget to speak it at every opportunity. And we have to make opportunities sometimes so that people can respond. Somehow you and I and everybody in this room who knows Jesus came to Christ, I would guess at least almost everybody, because someone had the boldness to speak to you the gospel. They may have lived it and attracted you to it, but they had to speak it at some point to you, whether it was family or friend. I personally came to Christ or a friend at my high school when I was 17 years old because I saw something in her life that attracted me, but she took the time and the courage to speak the gospel to me. And I received Christ. And what's especially striking about this is Philip goes and he begins to share the gospel with the Samaritans is the Samaritans and the Jews hated each other. (laughs) They had had a thousand year rift that began in the division of the kingdom. Way back after Solomon and his son Rehoboam and Jeroboam, they split two kingdoms. And ever since then. Jews hated Samaritans, but you know what? Philip didn't care. He looked at them. He ignored this thousand year rift that's reflected. Remember when Jesus met the woman at the well and he began talking to her and she said, whoa, what are you doing? Talking to me. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. Jews don't talk to Samaritans. Because that was the culture of the day, but Philip doesn't care. He saw people that were made in the image of God. And though they believed differently, he spoke the gospel. He crossed boundaries to reach them. The gospel spreads through faithful witnesses who speak and live the gospel before a watching and listening world. Are you and I faithful witnesses? Third, how does the gospel spread? It spreads through the power of God. Throughout this story, we see over and over again the power of God displayed. Let me read verses 9 through 13. Now, there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Great signs were taking place. People were being healed God was evidently there. The power of God was at work endorsing the message of the gospel. And Simon himself, who through his magic arts had made the people feel like, wow, this guy knows God. He's got a direct 
access to God. He is the great power of God when he saw the true power of God. It said he was astonished. He was amazed that there really was real power. Now, Simon got confused and wanted the power for himself, as we'll see in a moment. But and we need to be careful. We don't emphasize the signs, the power of God itself and miss the real point, because the signs and miracles are pointing us to Jesus. They're pointing us to the gospel and the good news. But having said that, God does do miracles. He, he still does today. He wants to use those to spread the gospel. Last year, here in the church, we saw several people healed, at least two. One person of a brain tumor who we prayed for, and God just simply took it away. Another person that the elders laid hands on and prayed for who had Parkinson's disease, and God chose to take it away. There are now no symptoms of Parkinson's disease in this woman's life. But why did God do that? Why doesn't God do it more often? Well, when he does it, he does it to point to the gospel. Because the real power of God is displayed not through physical healings, because you know what? Everybody heals is going to die. <laughs> it's temporary. It doesn't last. But the real power of God is displayed when souls are saved, when people turn to him and their eternal life is received from Jesus and their lives are turned around and they receive the hope of eternal life with him forever. That, that is the real power of God displayed. God's still doing lots of miracles. There are many stories out there if you just want to read some of them about how God is bringing Muslims to Christ, how he's bringing dreams into their lives to hold villages and pointing them to Christ and they're being saved through the power of God. And it's just a reminder, right, that we are to be faithful witnesses, but we can't save anybody. Only God can. It's his power. So what we do is share and some will respond, some won't. But that's not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to speak and live the gospel. And it's God's responsibility to bring them to him. But he does use his power. That's how people are saved, to set the captives free. So how does the gospel spread? Through the power of God. And fourth, it spread, as we see in this passage, through the apostles, through the apostles. Verse 14 through 17. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John. I think they were amazed. What? Samaritans <laughs> receiving the gospel? So they sent their two big shots, right? Peter and John. To find out what was going on here who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know about you, but this is kind of a strange story because the norm throughout the Gospels, throughout the Scriptures, is when somebody receives Christ, they receive the Holy Spirit at that time. 
So I think this is highlighted in this passage that this is unusual to have a delayed response of receiving the Holy Spirit. So why did God do it? Why did he delay it? I think for two reasons. One, he had a lesson to teach the Samaritans. And two, he had a lesson to teach the apostles. What lesson did the Samaritans need? Well, you see, in those thousand years of being separated from the Jews in Judea, in the southern kingdom, they had developed their own independent religion. They didn't go to the temple in Jerusalem. They worshipped golden calves first and then eventually built their own temple. And they worshipped Yahweh, but they did it in their own way. And they followed some of the scriptures, but they kind of developed their own independent religion and they liked their independence. So there was a real danger here. If they just received the Holy Spirit and received the gospel, but then lived independently of the apostles, they would develop their own independent brand of Christianity. And so God wanted them to know that no, only through the apostles is the authority given. Only the apostles are the ones that are anointed by Jesus to bring the truth. And therefore, you need to look to them for leadership in this new community. What kind of lesson did the apostles need to learn? Well, the lesson they needed to learn is that at this point, they're thinking the gospel is only for the Jews. Their minds haven't opened up to the fact that the gospel is for the whole world. They just weren't getting it yet. And so they needed to visually come, have a hands-on experience, (laughs) putting their hands on the Samaritans and seeing the Holy Spirit come. We don't know how it was manifest, but somehow they knew when that happened. They just received the Holy Spirit. So Samaritans can receive the Holy Spirit too. And I think this had to be really profound for John. Because back in Luke chapter 9, verse 52 and following, remember the story where the apostles, the disciples are traveling with Jesus through Samaria and the Samaritans were not being kind to them, weren't giving them a place to stay. And John says, hey, what should we do? Can we call down fire and destroy this village of Samaritans, Jesus? That's what he thought of Samaritans. And now as he lays hands on them and sees the power of the Holy Spirit poured out, whoa, he's learning a very important lesson that the gospel is for more than just the Jews. It is for everyone. As we go on in Acts, Peter and the others will have to keep learning that lesson more deeply, but it's a great beginning point. Well, how do we depend on the apostles? For us, we don't have the apostles walking around, but we do have their writings. They gave us the New Testament. And it's a reminder to us that when we share the gospel, we should always depend on the word and make sure our lives and our words are rooted in the biblical revelation that God has given us. We must never get away from that because if we do, then we're not sharing the gospel and we're not going to be setting people free. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but through him, and we must not forget that because that's what the apostles have told us. So the gospel spreads through the apostles, and then finally it spreads through repentance. Through repentance. 
In verses 18 through 25, I won't take time to read all those, but Simon, this magician, comes and says, you know, wow, I'm seeing all this power. Can I give you money, Peter and John, so that I can have this power too? See, he was looking at the gospel as a way to feather his own nest, to get status and power for himself. It was really all about him. (laughs) You see, anytime we're using God, using Christianity for ourselves to get status or fame or comfort or power or anything else, then ultimately we are going to harm the spread of the gospel. What happens is the world looks at us and says, well, you talk about loving others, but look at those Christians. Basically what they're doing is they're living for themselves, their own comfort. And too often they see us as hypocrites because of that, because they see a selfish, self-centered Christianity. And to be honest, I mean, don't we all struggle with this? We, we all live for self to some degree. So how can the gospel be set free in that kind of environment? Well, verse 22, Peter challenges Simon and says this, therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. You see, the answer, repentance. Whenever you see yourself living for yourself, whenever you're trying to take care of yourself rather than die to self, when when you see yourself living selfishly, repent of it, turn away from it, confess it, receive the forgiveness of God, but then make a choice to step outside your comfort zone, to be part of the great story, to share the gospel, to... Trust God in a new and fresh way to make those choices where your life is becoming his more and more and less and less about personal comfort and ease. You and I are part of something far bigger and far greater than just us. We're part of a bigger story the story of God that he is working out. And we're at this particular place in history, this particular town, this place God has put us because he wants to use us right where we are with the particular circle of friends that each of us has with our particular unique personalities he's given us, with our particular struggles and brokenness. He wants to use all that to be part of his great story of bringing restoration to his creation and to this broken world. But to fully participate, it's important we do it God's way. (laughs) And we join in with what God is actually doing in the world rather than relying on our own ideas. And how do we do that? How does God spread the gospel? Well, often through persecution. That's been the norm throughout history. He spreads the gospel through faithful witnesses who are willing to step out of their comfort zone and just continue to live and speak the gospel, speak truth, point people to Jesus. He spreads the gospel through God's power because he's the one who ultimately changes lives, not us. We just we just speak and let him work. He spreads the gospel through his word, through the apostles that we have with us. 
And he spreads the gospel through repentance as we repent of our selfishness and our self-centeredness and learn to live more fully for the kingdom of God, this great story that God is working out. Every good story has a turning point. God is involved in your story. But my prayer is that today might be a turning point in your life and in my life. That we might begin to take on the heart of God for a broken and fallen and lost world. That we might begin to move in a new direction. Could this be your turning point, my turning point, where God begins to move us into living for spreading the gospel? To live as part of the great story in a far deeper way than we ever have before. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. Thank you that you are working out your story in this world and that the only reason we're here is because somebody, some people chose to step in and be part of that story. Lord, may we, may we step out to be participants, not observers, so that others that we aren't even aware of maybe hundreds of years from now can look back and know that we were part of helping them know you. Thank you for what you're doing in our lives and for calling us into your story. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.